kinds of activities that lend themselves to historic uh, neighborhoods and historic preservation are also the kinds of activities that are connected in some way with culture that you often see. It's almost like an uh, evolution where you'll go into an older abandoned part of a city. In New York, you've seen generation after generation of this, but you also see it in Chicago, you see it in San Francisco, you see it in Denver, where an abandoned part of the town, first the art galleries go in, and they're almost like the pioneers. And then once they establish a beachhead, then sometimes you'll find some lofts and some, some people that want to live in a place that's a little more urban. Uh, they'll come in, and then you get certain other businesses, usually restaurants are kind of a close follower to the galleries. You know, there's a progression of, of different businesses that move in and over a period of time transform this abandoned part of the city into this new hip area. You know, that's urban revitalization. That was Mayor John Hickenlooper talking about the arts-driven revitalization of downtown Denver. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Mayor of Denver since 2003, John Hickenlooper is an unstinting supporter of the arts, eager to demonstrate that it's culture that makes a city vibrant. Culture first, commerce follows is his off-quoted mantra, and he knows this from the business side of things. He was a successful entrepreneur who established the first brew pub in the Rocky Mountains, which eventually grew to seven restaurants in the Denver area. In the process of building his businesses, Hickenlooper became involved with numerous downtown Denver renovation and development projects and is credited as one of the pioneers that helped revitalize Denver's lower downtown historic district. Mayor, before you even entered politics, preservation, design, was very, very important to you. You got a National Preservation Award from the National Trust for Historic Preservation in 1997, when I don't even think running for mayor was a gleam in your eye. <laughs> it's true. Why, I mean, as that, a businessman, did you think it was important? Well, I saw a lot of benefits to connecting business and culture and, and, and art. Uh, when we first opened the, my first restaurant, the Wine Coop Brewing Company, back in 1988, uh, the rent in our historic district, lower downtown, was a dollar a square foot per year. I mean, it was an abandoned warehouse district, and yet it had this wonderful human scale, and it was safe. It was, it was abandoned, but it was, it was safe and clean. And, you know, one of the ways that we kind of re, rejuvenated that whole area was through art galleries. Uh, one of the reasons our, our restaurant worked so well was we put, we got, we actually had a halftime curator who had relationships with all the different galleries, so we had rotating big works of art on this on the walls of this old warehouse that we turned into a restaurant brewery. And, you know, I just became uh, really kind of invested. First we did the one in Denver, then we did one in Fort Collins to the north and Colorado Springs to the south. Then we did one in Omaha and Des Moines and then Green Bay, Wisconsin. Always historic buildings, always downtowns, and always trying to take this brew pub, this restaurant, as a, as a way of rejuvenating the, the downtown area. And the design and, and, and bringing art into the building became a big part of the, the continuity of that, of that business plan. I know from your thinking, you, you tend not to think in silos so that there's urban revitalization here, A, and then B is sustainability. You tend to look at a model that encompasses both. 
Absolutely. And that was one of the real attractions to doing these historic districts in downtowns. And I remember vividly when I was, I was walking through lower downtown, this, you know, it's a, a fairly large area of, uh, I think it's roughly 40 or 45 blocks of historic turn-of-the-century warehouse buildings in downtown Denver, kind of on the west part of the downtown edge. And as I walked through it, I said, God, this, the buildings are at a human scale. It's clean. It's safe. It's been abandoned. But, you know, I would, I would want to live in here. I mean, I think this would be a, a great place to live. And... You know, that was part of the premise. We, we, as we did the restaurant, we eventually, after about two years of a successful restaurant, we did lofts on the upper three floors of this beautiful old uh, 1899 warehouse. And soon other, other entrepreneurs, other developers were doing similar projects around us. And sure enough, there were a lot of people, either empty nesters or young kids just out of, out of college. Those are the kind of two, two different components of the, of the population that was looking for this kind of more urban experience. But the sustainability aspect is if people are living downtown and walking to work, you avoid a lot of the real problems with economic growth, right? The congestion, the traffic, the air pollution from burning all that energy. You know, when you're living in urban areas, usually you're in a condominium or an apartment building in a multi-floor, you know, a five, ten-story building. Well, by having the, the buildings uh, one over top of each other, they're much more energy efficient. You don't need as much water. for You don't have a grass in your yard. Roofs of homes are always where the maximum heat is lost in the winter, the maximum air conditioning is lost in the summer. In, in, in an apartment building, you're just much more energy efficient. So having that downtown emphasis made us more energy efficient in, in so many different ways, and, and water uh, conservation went up. I mean, it just became much more sustainable. Denver is also graced with having 0.1% sales tax put aside for art. And that is one of those things I think we're the only – large metropolitan area that we call it the scientific and cultural facilities district and it takes one tenth of one percent of the whole metro area so it generates about a little more than 40 million dollars a year now even after the recession and it allows our large cultural institutions to really have a reliable uh, level of public support so the i mean it's one of the reasons why our museum of natural nature and science you know denver's roughly the 18th or 19th largest metropolitan area in the united states but we have the fourth most visited museum of nature and science, the fourth most visited zoo in the United States. Well, I don't know where the art museum is, but it's very high. We have the second largest performing arts center in, in our downtown, second only to the Lincoln Center. All those incredibly valuable institutions to our, to our quality of life, to how we go about things, wouldn't be possible with, without the scientific and cultural facilities district, this tax. It also allows us, since the, the distribution of the, of the revenues that are collected through the SCFD are, are based upon paid admissions, it allows us to, to measure how much, how, many, how much attendance and how much money is really being generated uh, by our cultural community, which, again, becomes a very valuable tool for nonprofits like the Symphony or the Opera or the Art Museum or the Museum of Nature and Science. It allows them to be much more persuasive going after philanthropists or corporate contributions and say, well, look, this is the part of it is for our economy. You know, the SCFD funds over 300 different, you know, museums, theaters, various types of cultural and scientific institutions over the whole metro area. So we collect all this information, and we can say the direct economic impact of our cultural community is, one point, is north of $1.7 billion a year. And, you know, we get one of the big accounting firms to, to do this for us. Uh, it really becomes uh, a, a, another 
another arrow in the quiver when you're trying to drive economic development. So I just want to make sure I'm getting this right, that approximately, and, and I understand we're, we're speaking in approximates here, that $40 million of investment generates over a billion dollars. Exactly. I mean, it's, it is a dramatic – I mean, we would have some of that – a significant part of that $1.7 billion already. But, you know, I'm a big believer that the, the, that the future economic generators are not going to be so much incentives that, that state or local governments offer to businesses, but really reflective of quality of life issues so that the, the same kinds of things that would attract a, a convention or a tourist to come visit Colorado – Right, the 300 days of sunshine, or the, you know, the Colorado Rockies, all these things that we trumpet all the time. 850 miles of bike paths in metropolitan Denver, they also become part of our economic development effort to attract businesses to open an office here or move here, and our cultural investment becomes a huge part of that. You know, we just had a Fortune 500 company uh, called Davida. They're the world's largest uh, dialysis company. And they're, I think, number 440 or 430 on the Fortune 500. And they were consolidating. They had executives all over the country. And they chose Denver largely, I think, because we do have the fourth most visited Museum of Nature and Science. And we do have the second largest performing arts center. They, they looked at our investment in our cultural community and said, huh, we might be able to attract more talented workers because of the, what a great place to live this is and be more competitive and, and, and keep them for a longer time by having our, our headquarters in Denver. And that one-tenth of one percent also funds a lot of public art, which I assume adds to the vitality of the community. Absolutely. Again, you build momentum around these things. And at least in the city and county of Denver, we have a one percent every municipal construction project. So if we're building a bridge or a, a public building, We'll take 1% of the total construction cost and use it for public art. And that just, again, creates that increasing critical mass. Well, early on in your tenure, you participated in the Mayor's Institute for City Design. Tell me about it. Yes. Very shortly after I was elected, I had a wonderful experience. Uh, we did it in Charleston. Uh, mayor Riley, who's been mayor, I now I think it's 33 or 34 years, uh, certainly the dean of all mayors everywhere. Uh, and for two days, we just thought about the issues of design and how they affect urban areas and some of the restraints, some of the ways to think about it. Uh, it was one of the most beneficial experiences of my first year in office by far. Well, can you tell me what actually happened there? Well, they invite um, several different mayors. I think they had four mayors there. And they ask you to bring a really challenging issue that, that, that exemplifies the aspects of design that can affect it can affect a large urban project. So, like, we brought the – we're taking our old Union Station and, and transforming it into a multimodal transportation hub with, you know, commercial and retail and housing and light rail and commuter rail and regional buses. So how that all comes together, what it's supposed to look like, and how it relates to the old historic neighborhood where my old restaurant was uh, became a big issue. And so I came, and the three other mayors all had similar big, meaty issues. And then they have – uh, I think they had five national experts in design, architects, planners, people that have spent their lives thinking about design. And we would spend about two and a half hours on each issue over the course of two days. So you got, I got two and a half hours about my issue, but I also got to spend two and a half hours about, I think it was three other issues with these experts and the mayors. Sometimes I, I felt like I learned more discussing something to do with Omaha 
than I did really even my own issue in Denver. It was a fascinating process. I want to talk about some of the wonderful museums that are in Denver, if we could, please. And Absolutely. The Denver Art Museum, the Hamilton Building, that was quite uh, quite an opening you had. It is a <laughs> very unusual building. Well, if you look at it, it almost looks like a, a mineral crystal, right? Something you'd find in a, in, a, in a mine deep in the earth, but almost like looks like a mineral crystal sprouting out of the ground with these, you know, uh, sharply slanting walls and, and prismatic shapes. But I love it. I mean, I think, why have we revolutionized what art can be and, and, and what art is to us, and yet we still insist on looking at all sculpture and all painting in rectilinear, you know, right-angled white, you know, gallery spaces? That building, well, it did generate a, a lot of conversation. Yeah. Well, people either loved it or hated it. Although I think people are generally coming and being more uh, accepting and giving it the benefit of the doubt. And as they do that, it, obviously it, it depends on the exhibit. And there are a number of galleries in the new uh, Frederick Hamilton wing of the Denver Art Museum that are uh, square and rectilinear. But there are enough with these funny shapes that it really, you know, you can show all different kinds of art in an, in an appropriate space. And it certainly has become the, the shape of the building has been an icon it helps define the city in much the same way that our, the, the kind of tented roof of our airport defines the city. Well, people talk about the Bilbao effect with Frank Geary's building of the Guggenheim in Bilbao and the same kind of striking building that in some ways put Bilbao on the map for absolutely. art lovers. Think, yep, absolutely. And it's, that was part of the goal. I'm not sure we got the same impact um, that Bilbao got just because what Guggenheim did was the first time, to my knowledge, that a museum of that size and that stature had invested in such a dramatic and revolutionary form. The shape was just so dramatic that suddenly it was the first time a museum said, all right, we're going to make the actual museum part of, of, of the cultural experience when you go to see art within it. I and mean, by being first, I mean, you're, they got millions of people. Again, the, the Frederick Hamilton building has been similar in that sense that it has dramatically increased people coming to see art in the museum. I think it's dramatically increased people coming to Denver uh, to see art, but not quite the same. I mean, Bill Bow, I don't think there'll ever be another uh, building that hits the world so dramatically as Bill Bow did. You also played a key role in the museum that's under construction now, the Clifford Still Museum. Yes, we have hoped to open in about a year, year and a half, I think. And Clifford Still obviously was by most measurements, uh, most uh, experts, one of, if not the primary, but one of the first real creators of abstract expressionism. And yet he rebelled against the commercial aspects of, you know, Jackson Pollock and some of the other expressionists, you know, how they would compete to sell their work and how much they could sell it for. And he only sold 75 paintings in his life, 75 or maybe it was 80 paintings. He left this collection of almost 2,500 pieces of art uh, more than 800 major canvases, all left to his wife with a very express will that said it could only be left to a city, not to a museum, but to a city that was willing to create a museum, and, and the museum would strictly be about Clifford Still. And obviously a very bold, and uh, he, he was not lacking in, in confidence. We all flew out to, to Maryland together, about 70 miles west of Baltimore, and visited the widow of Clifford Still, Patricia, in this beautiful old farmhouse, and there were literally hundreds of canvases rolled all over the first floor. 
uh, that she'd just been keeping there. Just for the frame of reference, I mean, his paintings have sold for close to $20 million uh, for an individual canvas. I mean, he is one of the most collected and, and valued of the early abstract expressionists. And here are all these, you know, literally hundreds of, of canvases sitting there unguarded. You know, it, was, it was pretty, it was a pretty amazing experience. And his widow was, was very charming and, and very eloquent. And it was a long discussion. She was also very eccentric and very cautious. But we finally reached agreement on what the museum would look like and how we could build the museum and, and go forward. He was uh, revolutionary in how he approached art, and now as we've gotten to see a number of his paintings, they are breathtaking. And he changed, he was one of the people that really changed the direction of art. And whereas most of the abstract expressionists, you can go to a museum and see two or three or maybe four of their works, maybe six or seven, there are very, very few places, very few museums dedicated to a single artist where a huge portion of their work, in this case, 90% of their entire creative output will be available in one spot. There's also a lot of art happening on the grassroots level. You have First Friday art walks throughout Denver, don't you? Yes, we have a number of of kind of emerging neighborhoods that have a number of galleries in each neighborhood. And so there are First Friday art walks, the first Friday of the month. Uh, There are a couple First Thursdays. But the notion, again, this is all part of the momentum around your cultural community. It's part of what the SCFD helps create. But that effort of, of getting more people involved and recognizing the value that, that art can add, I mean, there are a number of studies. I'd love to make Denver a place where we got, I'd love to get our businesses to commit to spending one-tenth of one percent of their payroll every year to buying art locally so that we become kind of a mecca for young, talented artists, you know, that they knew there'd be a market here. And there are all kinds of studies uh, the, the Colorado Business Committee for the Arts, they did a study at Storage Technology about 10 years ago and actually measured the impact, and it was, it was dramatic, of how many businesses in a competitive environment where, where different companies are trying to lure your employees, how many of your employees, not businesses, but how many of your employees would be less likely to take another job because of the art on the walls? How many of the employees feel that that art helps them uh, solve difficult intellectual problems? And Solving intellectual problems was almost 50%. The people that felt that it would make it harder for them to leave the company because of this great art on the place was, was north of 60%. It really demonstrated that for a relatively small investment, one-tenth of 1% of a, of a company's budget, they could have be much more competitive in, in retaining their employees and, and having their employees be more uh, productive and successful in their jobs. Well, I think this leads very nicely into... Denver's Biennial of the Americas. Yes, but this will be the first, the inaugural Biennial of the Americas. We hope to do this every two years, but it's a, you know, it's almost like a world's fair of ideas and innovation and culture. So, so often the United States looks towards Europe for our cu- cultural touchstones. We look towards China or maybe India, you know, towards Asia in terms of our future economic development. And yet we have this incredible hemisphere that we're part of. We import more oil from our hemisphere than we do from the Middle East. We have more trade within our hemisphere than we do uh, with China, and it's growing at a faster rate. We have these incredible countries that we almost, Americans aren't paying attention. Uh, so the biennial, the, the goal here is to bring people from 35 different countries, performing artists. We have a wonderful exhibit in a, a beautiful old building on our Civic Center Park, uh, the old McNichols building. It's originally a Carnegie Library that we've converted into this public space and there are artists from 24 different countries that are, it's a, an exhibit called The Nature of Things. And it kind of collects this idea of what is this hemisphere about? And 
What are some of the common threads? What is the DNA of the Americas? It's very exciting. We have all of our local institutions like the Museum of Nature and Science, the Art Museum, the Botanic Gardens has a wonderful display of orchids. But all these institutions are connecting to the Americas in different ways to try and create a, a, a critical mass and really for, for the month of July to immerse the entire Metro Denver region in the Americas. It's almost like a, a, a hemisphere as opposed to a hemisphere, <laughs> if, you'll, if you'll pardon that awful pun. And I think one of the best bridges we can make towards you know, more exports, a stronger economy is to use culture as that bridge. It's, it's strong. It allows people to look at a different country in a, in a whole new perspective and appreciate what that country is doing. And in that process, I think, of building that bridge, you create an opportunity that, you know, soon you're going to have commerce and trade. And, you know, that's one of the most historic and, and reliable ways of creating wealth that we've ever known, right, is trade generally benefits both sides. Let me ask you finally, we all know these are not the best of times economically. And many people feel during times like that, that's when you can put art on the back burner. There just isn't money for it. And they'll come back to art when times are better. What do you say to those people? Obviously, in in, in city government and state government, we've had to tighten up dramatically. And it's just not this year. It's been over the last really six or seven years uh, you know, since I've been mayor, the city government in Denver is now 5.5% fewer people than when I started seven years ago. And that kind of belt tightening is happening everywhere, and, and even in our, our cultural funding in terms of our, of our public investment. But, you know, we, this country still has a huge, huge component of remarkably successful entrepreneurs and, and executives, and they are, I think, recognizing that it, even in a down economy, sometimes that's the most important time. To, to make investments in our cultural community. And even when a, a symphony or a, a ballet or an art museum are, are struggling to balance their budgets, that's when people really have to step forward and find you know, more creative ways of raising money, better ways of generating public support and, and, and getting higher attendance. I mean, oftentimes as difficult as recessions are, you know, when I started the Wine Coop Brewing Company way back in 1988, it was one of the worst recessions that, the, that Denver had had since the Great Depression. Uh, not quite as bad as today, but, but very, very close. And yet there was opportunity there for people willing to make that investment. And of, of those kinds of investments, I think culture should always be a significant part of it. Mayor Hickenlooper, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Josephine, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for taking your time. That was Mayor John Hickenlooper talking about how art works in Denver. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the assistant producer. The music is Renewal by Doug and Judy Smith. The Artworks podcast is posted every Thursday. Next week, tenor and director of opera at the University of Kentucky, Everett McCorvey. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.